Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Religions of the World and the Restored Gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's episode focuses around Buddhism and the Restored Gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is James Holt and I'm your host for today. Um, before we begin, as, as we begin each podcast, it's just a reminder that as we engage with in some phrases, the religious other, as we learn about people of other faiths, as we learn about the beliefs and the practices, and as we study and as we work with, it's important for us as Latter-day Saints to not neglect our own faith and religious practice, that we make those the centre and make the saviour the centre of everything that we do. And that's really, really key because that enables us to stay rooted in what we are doing and who we are and our relationship with the saviour. As always, we strive to understand religions on their own terms, not on any caricatured view that we're perhaps putting forward, but we're trying to understand the religion as it is understood by people who follow it. And as we do so, we're open to develop our own religious practice and understanding. So there are things today that perhaps we'll disagree with, or perhaps we'll agree with, but in so doing, we're able to reflect on where we stand in relation to our own faith and practice. And also, it, learning about other religions and other worldviews enables us to stand in a place where we um, argue for, we fight for, we stand true to the principle of religious freedom that is enshrined in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we move forward, we consider the question, well, what is Buddhism? And Buddhism is, is difficult to define, and um, both in the terms of the fact that it's messy and there's lots of different ways of being Buddhist, but also in terms of what we mean by religion. So for example, we've, we had this discussion, I think in the second episode of this podcast, where we began to discuss, well, what is religion? And is, is it as clear cut as perhaps we've imagined? And perhaps when we look at someone like um, Ninian Smart and his seven dimensions of religion, one of them is the doctrinal. And if I was to ask most people to outline the characteristics of a religion, people may well begin to consider aspects of um, a worship of a deity. And actually, Buddhism challenges this. Um, can it be a religion? Because, um, as Mahathera suggests, the outward act or form by which men indicate their recognition of the existence of God or gods having power over their own destiny to whom obedience, service and honour are due. And so this is the idea that this is what a religion is, that there's a deity at the centre of it. And Buddhism is not a religion that has a deity at the centre of it. Now, I say that fully aware that recently in a Pew Research um, publication about religion in India, 66% or somewhere around there of people who identified as Buddhist also uh, believed in a god so what i mean th there are some shortcomings in the research and what do we mean by god i guess is the question because for example with within mahayana buddhism there is a realm of the gods in the in the um wheel of life so is this what is meant so but generally speaking uh, i suppose at the theoretical level we have no, buddhists have no concept of god but Mahathera continues, if by religion is meant a teaching which takes a view of life that is more than superficial, a teaching which looks to life and not merely at it, 
a teaching which furnishes men with a guide to conduct that is in accord with its inlook, a teaching which enables those who give it heed to face life with fortitude and death, with serenity, or a system to get rid of the ills of life, then it's certainly a religion of religions. And I think as we found, as we explore different religions, and certainly as I visit with people of different religions, they will say, well, I'm not convinced that we're a religion, but we're certainly a way of life. And maybe that's what the definition is, as we've tried to separate the different aspects of a person's life. Actually, a religion is something that suffuses or infuses every aspect of it. And so Buddhism certainly seems to be such an approach to religion. But it's worth highlighting again that although there are um, millions of of Buddhists around the country, uh, around the country, around the world, there are many different types. And so probably the oldest surviving type is something called Nikaya. It's also known as Hinaya as well, or, or Theravada. Um, Hinaya can be translated as the lesser or lower vehicle. So that, would, that, that description would be rejected by people who follow Nikaya or Theravada. Um, and this is the oldest, and they only accept the historical Buddha and teachings that can be historically linked to him. There are approximately 150 million Theravadan Buddhists around the world, but this is probably seen to be the most traditional form of Buddhism um, centered in and around the person of the Buddha, um, and is perhaps what many people think of um, when they consider Buddhism. But there's also Mahayana, which is by far the largest um, expression or tradition within Buddhism, which has about 360 million. And, and this is, again, an umbrella group. It developed, first of all, in India in the, in, uh, the first or second centuries BCE, but it then spread. And so as it spread, um, some, of the, some of the ideas are that there is um, the concept of the historical Buddha but also the idea that it's a cosmic presence that influences the world. And so it very much, there's a Buddha nature within everyone. And this spread throughout, um, kind of East really, um, so to Tibet and to Japan and others. And you'll know forms such as Zen and Pure Land, which are forms of Mahayana Buddhism as well. And then there's also Vajrayana Buddhism. And again, that's a part of Mahayana really. Um, it may be one of the schools of Tibetan Buddhism as well. And, and people are very familiar with Tibetan Buddhism because of the person of the Dalai Lama. Um, but Vajrayana is a much smaller group of about 18.2 million. But then there's lots of others. So there's uh, Soko Gakkai, which is in Japan. There's um, Navayana, I've mentioned Pure Land already, but there's also a group called Tri Ratna, who used to be part um, known as even the friends of the western buddhist order so this is the idea and and they only changed the name in the last 10 or so years um because initially um founded in the uk the idea was trying to reinterpret or make buddhism a way of life within western society of the 20th 21st century so that's definitely there um but so much of an appeal did it have that it spread back into India and other places. And so Friends of the Western Buddhist Order seemed to be not reflective really of where they found themselves and how they talk. And so Tri Ratna is 
is what is known as today. And some of the things that they did, so for example, in most forms of Buddhism, there is a separation between the ordained monks and nuns Sangha community and the lay Sangha, who are just the ordinary people. And, and there are connections. Um, but within Triratna, it was very much broken down. Um, there are also other things. So within Theravadan Buddhism, for example, monks and nuns shouldn't touch money. And Triratna said, well, that's not realistic in today's society. So there's lots of different ways to be Buddhist. So I'm going to explore some things that I think are accepted by the majority of Buddhists, but at the same time, there will be different views. And so it's, it's very much in an hour, just kind of going through uh, the basics and the kind of the fuzzy outline, if you like, of, of Buddhist beliefs and practices. Now, the message of Buddhism um, as a way of life is the search for enlightenment through the application of what's known as the Four Noble Truths. And the Buddha used a well-known Indian medical formula to help explain the Four Noble Truths. And so this formula is a cure for the world's illnesses and also the way to enlightenment. So there are four parts to this Indian medical formula. Number one, what is the illness? Number two, what has caused the illness? Number three, does a cure exist? And number four, the remedy. What does the patient need to do in order to be cured? And so the Buddha identified the four answers to those questions throughout his life. The first noble truth is that suffering is a part of everyday life. And this is known as dukkha. Dukkha is translated as suffering, but there's all different aspects to suffering. Um, but everybody experiences suffering in some way. So this is the problem that is to be solved. And this is a universal truth, if you like, that suffering is just a part of um, this life. And interestingly, the Buddha told a story uh, of a lady called Krishna Gotami. And she was interesting. She, um, she had recently lost her child and she was carrying around uh, this little baby's body. And, and she went to the Buddha and asked him to pour, perform a miracle and bring her child um, back to life. And the Buddha responded, there's only one way to heal your affliction. Go down to the city and bring me back a mustard seed from any house in which there's never been a death. Krishna Gotami felt elated and set off at once for the city. She stopped at the first house she saw and said, I've been told by the Buddha to fetch a mustard seed from a house that's never known death. Many people have died in this house, she was told. She went to the next house. There have been countless deaths in our family, they said, and so on and so on. And then she realized that the Buddha's condition could not be fulfilled. So she took the body of her child and said goodbye to him for the last time. And then she returned to the Buddha. He asked, did you bring the mustard seed? She said, no, but I am beginning to understand the lesson you're trying to teach me. Grief made me blind and I thought only I had suffered at the hands of death. Why have you come back? Asked the Buddha. She said, to ask you to teach me the truth of what death is, what might lie behind and beyond. And what in me, if anything, will not die? The Buddha began to teach her, if you want to know the truth of life and death, you must reflect, continue on, on this. There is only one law in the universe that never changes, that all things change and that all things are impermanent. And this links very much 
to the second noble truth, which is the idea that the cause of suffering is craving or desire, tana. People suffer because they want to hold on to something. They are attached to it. They have the craving or the desire. Now, at a very banal um, kind of example of this, we have the idea that, um, for example, if I cannot have the latest iPhone, then I'm going to go into a mood and I'm going to be fed up. And this is because I have a desire for the latest iPhone. But it's obviously every other aspect of it as well. So when we consider, um, for example, why we suffer when someone dies, it's because we are craving the relationship that we once had. We want that company. So in response to the question of whether a cure exists, um, the third noble truth known as Naroda is that suffering can be ended by stopping desires and cravings. So we will not suffer if we don't have these attachments. And so therefore this leads to the remedy, which is the fourth noble truth or Magga, the eightfold path of the middle way, which we'll explore in a few minutes, which is the idea that a person can live um, the middle way of neither excess nor asceticism, and they will find the path to enlightenment. Now, as we reflect on the four noble truths from a Latter-day Saint perspective, obviously we are aware that suffering is a part of the mortal experience. Lehi teaches us in 2 Nephi 2 that there's an opposition in all things. We know um, from section 122, for example, that Joseph Smith, when he's talking about the suffering that he's gone through, and the Saviour replies, the Son of Man hath descended below them all, art thou greater than he? So suffering is a part of life, but it's also a way that we can connect with the Almighty, with our Heavenly Father and our Saviour. Um, Terrell Givens, and I think Fiona Givens, wrote a book called The God Who Weeps, and, and bringing up an Old Testament um, kind of analogy of a, of a weeping deity who suffers along with us, and that's very much a focus of the atonement is that we're not left to suffer alone. But that as we reflect on the Four Noble Truths, it's not the removal of those attachments that will cause us happiness or to reduce suffering, but it's about focusing on those relationships or attachments that will be of most worth. So with the Godhead, with our families, um, that are lasting. And this is the idea in Buddhism um, that there is nothing that is permanent. Everything is impermanent, including the self or the soul. And so there are aspects of these Four Noble Truths that are very much anathema to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think all of us, as a part of life, are trying to travel this journey of life, if you like, and find a solution to the sufferings and the pains of life. Um, in, in wider Christian theology, it's known as a, a, a theodicy. So trying to explain the, the, the problem of suffering, if you like. And while there are elements of the Four Noble Truths that we can perhaps connect with, there are elements that don't quite gel with, with the gospel sense. And we need to kind of think about, well, why is it that, that we are content or happy with an approach to life that provides a savior as opposed to one that is very much about um, self-fulfillment. And I think 
we do have self-fulfillment within the gospel, but I think the saviour is, is key and, and, and obviously forms the basis of everything that we do. Now, interestingly, is almost a corollary within Buddhism. Um, the life of the Buddha or the life of Siddhartha Gautama has a central play, a part to play. Now, has that always been the case? I don't know. Um, so there is a discussion about the fact that when um, Buddhism encountered the Western world, in order for Christian um, colonialists to understand Buddhism properly, what they did is they took a religion which focused on the life of an individual and created a Buddhism that was almost in its own image, where the life of the Buddha became central. And there's a book by um, Donald Lopez Jr. called Curators of the Buddha, which is really interesting because it begins to suggest the idea, well, yes, the life of the Buddha is important. I'll explain why the life of the Buddha is important in, the, in a moment. But is it as central as perhaps is suggested? Or was it as central as is suggested 200 years ago, 300 years ago? Or has it just become such over the intervening years? Now, I think it is important. It's important in the sense that it's also a metaphor, if you like, or an allegory of the Four Noble Truths. And so we look at the life of the Buddha or the life of Siddhartha Gautama, and we see the Four Noble Truths lived out and shown within um, the, the story of the life of Siddhartha Gautama. Now, is it true? Well, certainly from a metaphorical perspective, it teaches truth for Buddhists. Did it actually happen? Well, it was written down hundreds of years later. And so there will always be questions, but it fits the narrative. And so, in again, linking back to Hinduism last year, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Now, the life of the Buddha is split into various different sections. Um, one of the, uh, the Buddha, or Siddhartha Gautama, was born in Nepal in the 7th century BCE. He was born as a prince. There were auspicious signs surrounding his birth. And prior to her pregnancy, his mother dreamed of a white elephant entering her womb. At that time and in that place, white elephants were very rare and honoured. And this event is taken as a sign that her baby would be great. Upon Siddhartha's birth, his father was visited by a holy man who told him that Siddhartha would either be a great ruler or a great teacher. Determined that his son would be a great king, Siddhartha's father went to great lengths to provide him with the upbringing that would be suitable for a leader. Part of this entailed Siddhartha having every luxury and experience no suffering. To ensure this, Siddhartha was not allowed to leave the palace grounds. One suggestion as to his life is that if plants showed signs of dying, they were replaced. If servants showed signs of getting old, then they were also replaced. Siddhartha's life was one of free of suffering, but on one occasion, Siddhartha's father allowed him out of the palace, but this was carefully choreographed to show life outside of the palace in a positive light. But then later, following um, his marriage and also the birth of a son, he escaped the palace. Um, because he was still yearning for more. He knew there was more than, than perhaps what he'd experienced. And he saw something known as the four sights. And now within Buddhist teaching, they either happened all at once or they happened on four separate occasions, but, but again, it doesn't matter. The four sights were a, a, an old person, an ill person, a dead person, an ascetic. 
or a, a holy man who lived a life of, of, of denial. And the four sights are an important event in the Buddha's life because it was through these that he realized that suffering was a part of life. The way of living where everything was provided that he was living at that point was not the way to overcome suffering and have a happy life. A person is only deceiving themselves that suffering does not exist. And so in the way that he lived his life at that point, there was no true freedom and happiness. These thoughts helped Siddhartha realize there was a problem that needed to be solved and thus began his path to enlightenment. So this is the first noble truth. He realized the reality of suffering. And so he decided to leave um, the palace and his family and to seek for a way to find happiness and overcome suffering. Although he left his family behind, he recognized that he couldn't be truly happy because he realized that someday he would lose them. He needed to find a solution. So he went to live as an ascetic, a holy man who renounced the world. And he met a group of five and he felt that, well, this is the complete opposite way to the way that I've lived in the palace. And so this might provide the answers that he sought. And he lived like this for a number of years, sometimes living on a grain of rice a day, but he didn't come any closer to life's questions. He therefore gave up this life. Now it's interesting because some may see this period of Siddhartha's life as a failure, but it's seen in Buddhism as an important step within his search for enlightenment. The self-denial and meditative practices of the ascetics, while imperfect, helped the Buddha develop attributes and practices that would be important in the development of the middle way. Having lived a life of luxury and a life of denial, he realized that neither provided him with the contentment. He needed to live a middle way, a life that wasn't luxurious, neither was it ascetic. Utilizing Siddhartha's example, Buddhists are able to avoid the pitfall of self-denial and strive for enlightenment without the trial and error. And the Buddha experienced, um, at this point, he began to search for enlightenment, so this freedom from suffering. And a time later, he meditated under a bodhi tree to seek enlightenment. And after sitting cross-legged with his back towards the tree, he determined to continue in meditation until he'd found enlightenment. He meditated on his breathing in and breathing out. It was an evening of a full moon. During the night, he was assailed by the daughters of the demon Mara. Many evil thoughts, said to be the daughters of the evil god Mara, sent to dance for him, crept into his mind. These thoughts of desire, craving, fear and attachment arose. Yet Siddhartha did not allow these thoughts to disturb his concentration. He sat impassive. The middle way was evident in his reaction to the temptations, whether real or within his mind. He was neither interested nor repulsed. Both are extremes of possible reaction which would have distracted him. He was impassive and focused on his own meditation. So there are many people, in, in, indeed Richard Gombrich, who is one of the um, world-renowned experts on, on Buddhism, talks about how this is a mental kind of experience that he has in the sense that it's in his mind. And these are psychological temptations that, that perhaps people have to go through. And so he was able to kind of chart this middle way of neither revulsion or excitement. It was just a very equanimity of mind. 
And through this process, Siddhartha felt calm and found the power of seeing his own past lives. In the second part of the night, he realized the impermanence of life and how living beings die only to be reborn again. In the third part of the night, he realized the cause of all evil and suffering and how to be released from it. He understood how to end sorrow and happiness, suffering, old age and death. The Buddha or the enlightened one passed into a deep meditation, passing beyond the limits of ordinary human understanding, seeing the world as it is, not as it appears to be. And having understood the world as it is, the Buddha was perfected in wisdom, never to be reborn. Craving and desire had been totally eradicated and he'd found the state of perfect peace or enlightenment. Now, the Buddha didn't keep this to himself. He went and found his five old um, friends who had been ascetics with him. And he taught them in the deer park, um, the beginnings of this um, search for enlightenment, this path. And so he created the Sangha, which is the community of Buddhists. Now, interestingly, there are three refuges within, um, or three jewels, and both, both phrases are correct, within Buddhism. So the refuge of the Buddha, the refuge of the Dharma, which is his teachings, and also the refuge of the Sangha or the community of Buddhists. And there are differences in the way. So, for example, uh, within Theravadan Buddhism, um, Theravadan Buddhists believe that only monks or arahants or arhats can be can achieve enlightenment. Whereas within Mahayana, it's very much a tradition that, that everybody has a Buddha nature and can achieve or attain enlightenment, um, regardless of gender, regardless of um, being lay or ordained. At the time the Sangha was um, put together, um, there were no nuns, but then his aunt um, petitioned him numerous, numerous times to become a nun. And so eventually nuns were accepted within to the, the ordained Sangha as well. Now, the Buddha's enlightenment, Nibbana, wasn't complete until his death. And so death enables Buddhists, if you like, to escape the cycle of samsara, which is the cycle of birth and rebirth. And so you will see Buddha rupas or statues of the Buddha where he's laying on his side because that was the repose that he was in when he passed away and he was cremated and elements of him, some of his bones and teeth, are buried under stupas that can be found throughout the world, such as um, in Sri Dalada Malagawa or Sarnath or Sanchi. Um, and there are um, stupas that, that are said to contain um, some of the relics, if you like, of the Buddha. Now, interestingly, the Buddha taught about a personal path to enlightenment. Now, although there is no self and there is no soul within Buddhism, it is very much a personal seeking for enlightenment. And he only trod the path, if you like, and showed people the way. Um, and certainly uh, within Buddhism, he's not seen to be the first person to have ever done this, um, but he, he is he is the most famous and he's the one that people follow most. Um, but it is the idea that uh, he has become the focus of worship rather than um, kind of the exemplar. And so there's, there's differences in the way that, that Buddhism is followed today. Now, as we look at this from a Latter-day Saint perspective, obviously the story is, is very interesting. 
and it helps us understand how Buddhists view the world. But is there anything that we can take from this in terms of the way that we live the gospel? And one of the things that stands out to me is on the night of his enlightenment, he was tempted and he was neither repulsed nor excited by some of the things that he was tempted with. And sometimes I guess we hold on very, very tight and we're, we're very dismissive of things and almost we become evangelical in, in the rejection of things that we take our eyes off the saviour maybe so so it's interesting to consider that um but also in the sense of of i think we can consider the moderation in all things that a life of excess in either direction is not a positive thing that we can perhaps go too far one way um and so we need to find a balance within our lives, just as within Buddhism, it's a way of life. So too is discipleship of the savior. It's not something that, again, we bolt on or off. It's something that's a natural part of who we are. And so we need to be very conscious of our discipleship and how that affects our day-to-day -day living. But I think also we can become too, I guess, focused on certain aspects to the exclusion of others. And that's why when we look at the middle way, I think some aspects of the, of the middle way really help me understand how I am um, to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. So one story is told about the Buddha where um, he meets a man who's playing a sitar and he asks why the strings are not kept taut all of the time. He said, well, because it would lose its tunefulness and everything else, we have to give the ability to have slap. Now, this story has great, for me, links with the story told by William Allred, who was a contemporary of Joseph Smith. And he said this, he said, I've played ball with him many times in Nauvoo. He, Joseph Smith, was preaching once and he said it tried some of the pious folks to see him play ball with the boys. He then related a story of a certain prophet who was sitting under the shade of a tree amusing himself in some way, when a hunter came along with his bow and arrow and reproved him. The prophet asked him if he kept his bow strung up all of the time. The hunter answered that he did not. The prophet asked why, and he said it would lose its elasticity if it did. The prophet said it was just so with his mind. He did not want it strung up all of the time. Now, as I discuss this with my institute class, one of the things that I mention is, is the books that I read. So currently, um, I'm reading my scriptures. I'm reading The Spirit of Revelation by Elder Bednar. I am reading um, Stretching the Heavens, a biography of, of uh, Eugene England, and also a book about Sikhism called Janam Saki. So there's also another book that I'm reading um, about by Thrawn, called Thrawn, and it's a Star Wars book. So, scriptures, spirit of revelation, those are, those are things that are helping me spiritually, and those are things that are, uh, are definitely um, part of my spiritual development. The, the, the book about the Janam Sakis, that's to do with work, and a book I'm writing about Sikhism. Um, the Star Wars book, that's just for fun. Now, I think this is a perfect analogy for me of the balance that I try and find in my life. So I have work, I have um, the gospel, the discipleship, and I also have just an ability to kind of take time for myself. And that's where the Star Wars book comes in. 
So it's about finding balance within our lives. And sometimes that balance is used as an excuse not to do certain things, and that's not right. But the balance is an opportunity to help us understand that there are competing demands that all give us equanimity of mind. And so I, I spoke to my daughter, my eldest daughter, and moved away to university recently um, and is, uh, to do a master's. And, and one of the conversations that we have when we phone her is she's working, she's also studying, but she's also having fun as well as, as, well as um, kind of going to church and things and socialising. And maybe some people would say, well, you're, you're there to work and you're there to do this. But actually socializing is a really important part because it allows almost our bodies to have a rest and to think and not to kind of be too caught up on things so we have to approach this middle way where there is a time and a season um as we're told in ecclesiastes to all things but when we consider the middle way and it and we consider kind of the various aspects of life that i think this links with it kind of covers three aspects. So there's the three, threefold path as well, which is the way of wisdom, the way of morality, and the way of meditation. All of them have aspects of the middle way or the eightfold path in, the, in, in their way. So if I list them quickly, right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness, and right concentration. Now, what do these mean? So I look at some things, and, and, and I, th I think of um, right understanding. So your mental attitude to life affects what you get out of life. Developing right attitudes and thoughts is important. And sometimes I can be overly optimistic. Sometimes I can be overly pessimistic, but it's about developing an understanding and an approach to life that helps you kind of develop that attitude and the understanding that's there. There's right speech and words are powerful things. We should take care in what we say and make sure that all we say is helpful and encourages goodness. So I can look at that from a Buddhist perspective and think, yeah, there's a, a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that says we should strengthen our brethren in all our conversation. So is what I am saying building people up, helping people draw closer to the Savior, or is it tearing people down? And so we have to be very, very conscious of the way that we speak. Right livelihood. In Buddhism, we have to, you have to be careful to have a job which doesn't destroy life or cause harm to others. So then we think, okay, well, I'm not sure any of us will be in a job that does that. But at the same time, how do we conduct ourselves within our job? Are we honest in all our dealings? Do we lie? Do we strengthen other people? So there's lots of different things that we can do by reflecting on the middle way that kind of make it just an approach to life. And so it, I find the middle way whenever I teach about it or whether I learn, whenever I learn about it as a trigger, if you like, trigger is not the right word, a springboard for the living of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that helps me think a little bit more about my relationship with God and my discipleship. Now, there are other aspects of Buddhism. So there's something called the three marks of existence that are fundamental. So anatta, the denial of the permanent self or soul, anicca, the impermanence, the instability of all things, and dukkha, which is suffering. Those are the three marks of existence. And although dukkha, yes, we accept, and we accept the impermanence of things, things are always changing, that's great. We very much 
well, I very much disagree with the idea that there is no personal self or soul. We are told as part of the plan of salvation that we existed as spirit children of God and that we will continue to exist as ourselves and those relationships which are which can be permanent and can be eternal. And so there, are re there really are things that stand in distinction to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, another really interesting um, example of thing, uh, example of a teaching within Buddhism is within Mahayana Buddhism. If you look at a picture of the Buddhist wheel of life, you will see six realms of rebirth. And they're held, if you like, in the, in the arms or the grip of, of the demon Mara. But within each one of the realms, you will see a Buddha-like figure. And this is known as a Bodhisattva. And so within Mahayana Buddhism, there are beings who have put off enlightenment to stay within that realm and help people find enlightenment. And so this is where you will see the various images that don't necessarily look like the Buddha, because there are bodhisattvas who are beings of compassion who have lived um, throughout history to help people find this path. And so, for example, the Dalai Lama is the... Um, I think the 15th reincarnation or rebirth of a bodhisattva to help people find it. And the Lotus Sutra describes the bodhisattva. It says there are different bodhisattva um, who are involved in setting examples and providing support and guidance. For this reason, bodhisattva are prayed to in Mahayana Buddhism. Sorry, this isn't from Lotus Sutra. Every being has a Buddha nature, which means they have a potential for enlightenment. Therefore, the process of attaining enlightenment is a search within ourselves to discover who we really are. The purpose of life is to become a bodhisattva. Nibbana, or freedom from that cycle, is a lesser goal for those whose main desire is to escape suffering. And there is a, a slight discussion about um, bodhisattva and Theravadan, but generally speaking, bodhisattva are very much a, a Mahayanan view of um, the ideal. And that's really interesting because in some ways it's a being who, who puts off their selves and their own interests um, for, for, for the help, for helping others. And um, I think it's Walpole Rahula, who's a writer within Buddhism, who talks about um, this being almost like a messianic figure. So there are similarities and differences. But in some ways what I'm doing now is that I'm just kind of skipping through a couple of things that... Um, I think are interesting for that may kind of motivate some further study. But one of the things that we should always remember with any religion really, is that we are talking about almost the, the idealized view of beliefs and also how religion is lived and what is taught. And there is a dark side to every religion. There are things that perhaps are out of kilter with the officialness of or the officiality of something that is taught. And so there are, for example, if we look at Myanmar at the moment, there is anti-Muslim feeling, there are um, the way that Muslims are treated within Myanmar is horrendous, and this is by Buddhists. And so, for example, one of the most um, famous figures is Aung San Suu Kyi, who is amazing um, because she was under house arrest for so long, um, 15 years, she taught Buddhist precepts such as loving kindness, and she fostered reconciliation, and many of them saw her as almost a bodhisattva. But 
since she's taken control in Myanmar, um, there, there was a suggestion while she was leading the country that um, the place of Buddhists themselves were promoted at the expense of ethnic and religious minorities. Um, and so it's, it, there is this tension, and I think we need to be aware of that within all religions and, and even within our own religion as well, is to consider, well, sometimes people don't always live up to the precepts or to the teachings that we would hope. And so we begin to think, well, okay, yeah, what can we learn from? And what can we focus on in that? So, I mean, I've, I've covered lots of different things when we've talked about um, Buddhism today, and there are, are many different things that take us off in lots of discussions around um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but I think of all the things that I learn from Buddhism is that equanimity of mind or that equanimity of life, where we don't live life to excess, um, we are happy with what we have, but also with the motivation that we want to um, learn line upon line, that we want to draw close to um, our Saviour and to our Heavenly Father. So there's all of these things that kind of are both complementary to, but also antithetical to Buddhism. So it's really interesting. And hopefully, as we've discussed those things today, um, it will have piqued some interest, but also will help you understand our Buddhist brothers and sisters better. And interestingly, um, let me just share this with you. This is um, from a, a book by Brad Wilcox in 2009. And he talks about a friend of his who um, converted to the Church from Buddhism. He said, as she, a convert to the Church from Buddhism, read the Book of Mormon, she realized that Jesus completed Buddha's teachings. Through Buddhists, she'd learned that there would be life after death. Now she knew it was Jesus who made that life possible. Through Buddhists, she had learned her actions had consequences, but now she knew it was Jesus who could alter the negative outcomes that follow negative choices. Jesus could provide a positive future despite a negative past. So it's interesting how we can, we can use um, religions to understand our own, but most importantly, we use this understanding to understand other people as well. So thank you so much um, for listening today. Our next um, episode will be focused around the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and Sikhi or Sikhism. Um, and so um, I look forward to seeing you then. Goodbye for now.